0: Hey friends, this is Keenan, the Creative Arts Minister at the Christian Church of Carl Junction. And I just want to say thank you for joining us for this podcast. The Christian Church of Carl Junction exists to glorify God by being disciples who make more disciples. We do that by coming to God, thriving in family, and going on mission for his kingdom. We hope that this podcast helps you take next steps in following Jesus with everything that you have. Now, here's today's podcast episode. Good morning. Welcome here to the Christian Church of Carl Junction. In the room with us here online, I'm glad you joined us today. Before we jump in, I want to take one more moment to remind you we have an app for our church. It's brand new this year. You can find it in your app store of your phone. Search for This is CCCJ. You can find it right there. It'll be our logo in there and everything. It's a great way to take notes on Sundays. There's daily content, all kinds of things that will help you, I believe, connect better with what God is doing here in and around this place. Uh, We've been in a series this year so far called It's Complicated. The first week we talked about being people who live in the middle of complicated, messy, painful sometimes relationships. Knowing that they're not perfect and they're not easy. All these things. And we talked about being a people who live at the pace of purity. If we can live at the pace of purity, the way God has called us to, then we can begin to unravel and uncomplicate some of these relationships. Uh, Last weekend, I encouraged you, out of the Word of God, to be a people who are trustworthy, being made in the image of a trustworthy God. And if we can live that way, we begin to uncomplicate relationships to see the will of God be done. Uh, This morning... I want to encourage you. I believe God is going to speak to you out of the word. And we're going to look at four different places in scripture and then use a fifth one to show us the big picture. And I believe God's going to encourage you today to be a people who are connected, connected to him and connected to each other, to other people. As we jump into that, I got to tell you a little bit about myself. Maybe you already know this. This might not be a surprise to anybody in the room or anybody online here, but, but I am by nature, by a personality, I'm an introverted person. I'm an introverted person. I love preaching. I love being with people. I love being with the church. I love hanging out. I love praying with people and meeting in my office and being in the lobby. I love all these things. But I can only do it for a little while. I'm an introverted person. Growing up, I used to think there was something wrong with me. Maybe there is. I don't know. But I used to think there was something wrong with me that I would get into a crowd of people, people that I love, people I enjoy being around, and I would have this feeling that would begin to gnaw at me and begin to grow within me that just screamed, leave, get out. And I used to think it was weird because I just sometimes have to step away. Uh, We have these things called oikos. They meet in our homes all around the area right here. There's one that meets in my house every other Sunday night. And at my oikos, we have regularly between 30, 35, 40 people in my house for oikos. People from the age of little bitty up to grandparents all the way through there gather in my home. And I love oikos. I look forward to oikos. And sometimes in the middle of oikos, I have to go hide for just a minute. Because it's a little bit much. I used to think that was weird. My wife is an extroverted person. She thinks it's weird to not want to be in the crowd. And the bigger the crowd, the longer it goes, the more energy she gets. It's different. I've learned about introverted and extroverted people. I've learned that introverted people are kind of like, they're kind of battery-powered. We get our our energy from inside, and there's times we've got to close the door, be in our own thoughts, be alone, just to get a little bit more energy. Extroverted people are like solar-powered people. They get more energy from the environment that they're in. They just get more and more and more. That's my wife. That's not me. Both are normal, and both are okay, and both are godly. But whether you are introverted like me or extroverted like my wife, it does not matter. You have to have relationships with other people. Specifically, the kinds of relationships that you were created for. You were created not to have relationships that are centered around things like hobbies and work and neighborhoods and communities and TV shows and things you do. Those are all okay, but they're not what we center around. We were all made to have Jesus-centered relationships that connect us with other people. See, Jesus-centered relationships connect us with other people. We were made in the image of a pure, holy, trustworthy God who thrives in community and wants us to have community. When he made Adam, Adam was alone in the Garden of Eden. He said it's not good to be alone. He made Eve, put them together, said it's very good. You've got to be together. We were made for relationships. The key is finding Jesus-centered relationships that connect with other people. This morning, I want to give you four traits of a Jesus-centered relationship. And then I want to show you this beautiful picture of what it looks like when we find that. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump in. We're going to skip through several spots in the Bible today. They'll be on the screens in the room here, um, and, and I'll give you time to find there, hopefully, to get there with me. Let's pray together, and then we're going to jump right into 1 John chapter 3. Verse 16, let's pray together. Father, I ask this morning that you would speak to us out of your word. I pray that as we gather here, some of us are in person, some of us are online. We are all part of the same church, the same kingdom, following the same God, following you. I pray you would show us today a way to recognize our relationships, to surrender them to you, to be Jesus-centered, and then let us leverage those relationships in a powerful, holy way, so that your kingdom would grow and thrive among us, around us, and through us, and we would see lives transformed through the power of Jesus-centered relationships. That's what I'm praying, Father. And I believe you're going to convict and challenge us through your Holy Spirit today. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. In First John. Chapter 3, verse 16, we're going to find our first trait of a Jesus-centered relationship. The first trait right here. This is what John, one of the 12 apostles, he said this. He said this. At the end of his life, he was looking back and he was writing and he said, this is how we know what love is. See, John, when he was younger, he was one of the sons of thunder. One of the apostles that was kind of known for a temper, and for being loud. But now at the end of his life... He's become this apostle that talks about love all the time. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You know, it's easy to think. It's easy to think that somebody who locks them away with themselves away with Scripture just to read the Word of God and to pray all the time and removes themselves from the ways of the world and what the world has to offer. It's easy to think that that's a more holy way to live. In fact, there are whole cultures and communities that do this. They, they back away from the world. They put walls up and they, they hang out by themselves with their own languages even sometimes just to spend time in the Word. And they say, this makes us more holy. But what you find out is those communities are just as broken, just as complicated as any others. is not more holy to remove ourselves from the world this is how we know what love is Jesus Christ laid down his life Jesus didn't come to be a hermit sitting in a cave like a monk somewhere praying and reading the scrolls of scripture and spending time with the father and meditating and thinking until it was time for him to leave his little hermit cave and go to the cross to be a sacrifice that's not what Jesus came to do Jesus came to be with people lepers People who had a horrifying skin disease, a death sentence. He came, and instead of uh, ignoring them and exiling and abandoning them, he went and he embraced them. Cripples, people who sat on the side of the road, they begged for money, for spare change. They, they just wanted just enough to get by. That's all they could do. People looked at them. They stepped around them. They avoided them, and they laughed at them. They were mocking them. They were mockeries in society. Jesus went to them, and he picked them up, and he healed them. Uh, In this culture, in 1st century AD, women, women who at this time in history, unjustly and unfairly, were treated as second-class citizens, Jesus said, that's not how I'm going to be. And he came and he spoke to women as though they were equals. He ate in their homes. He was friends with them. Gentiles people who weren't Jews. Jesus was a Jew. His whole culture was Jews. Anybody who wasn't a Jew was a Gentile. It's everybody else that would include you and me. We were all Gentiles. The Jews had disdain for them. That's Outside God's people. We don't like those people. They're They're dirty people. They're different people. But Jesus said, I'm going to go talk to them. And he loved the Gentiles. Even the ones who were leading the army that was ruling over the Jews. Uh, Jesus came to be with All had to do the poor. In a culture, in a culture that viewed financial success as an indicator of your spiritual blessing, and so if you were poor, you obviously were not right with God, Jesus came and he spent time with the poorest of the poor. Jesus came to love other people. Jesus-centered relationships, number one trait, Jesus-centered relationships love other people. No matter what they look like, what they sound like, what they do, where they go, what they've done, where they've been. Jesus-centered relationships love other people. And I get it. People are messy and people are irritating sometimes. Be honest. People can be frustrating, infuriating even at times. It would seem easier to do things all on your own. And maybe you've heard that little whisper in your ear. It's the enemy. It's Satan whispering in your ear. He whispers in mine more often than you know. It would be easier just to do this by yourself, Adam. It would be easier just to ignore people. Just put a wall up. Close the door. Go do it on your own. If the enemy whispers, it would be easier because you're better at it than they are. You, you can do it quicker. It's easier. Go do it yourself. But Jesus-centered relationships don't put up barriers and walls. They open doors and they love other people. Always. That was the way Jesus viewed relationships. That's trait number one. Jesus-centered relationships love other people. Let's talk about trait number two. It's over here in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 10 specifically. And these blue Bibles, if you're in the room right here, it's on page 775. And If you don't have a Bible and you're in the room, take it home with you today. If you're online, I want to send it to you. Send me uh, a contact with your information. I'll get a Bible to you. I want you to have the Word of God. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. The Apostle Paul writes. He says, be devoted to one another in love. It's that love thing again. Be devoted in love. And then he says, honor one another above yourselves. Honor one another above yourselves. Another translation, another version of the Bible says to outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. I am a somewhat competitive person. I am a little bit competitive, and I like to win. If I'm playing a game, I'm playing to win. My kids know this. It makes my five-year-old cry. I won't let him win, right? I'm playing to win. That's not always healthy and holy and good. But this is a competition I can get behind. Outdo one another in showing honor. What would the world look like? What would the world look like if this morning, on this Sunday, all the believers in the world gathered up in all the churches all around the world, in all the cities, towns, states, and nations of the world, and we all gathered up, and we all sang songs in different languages with different words. Some sing old hymns, and some sing modern songs. It doesn't matter what you sing. We're all worshiping the same God, reading the same word, Not being dismissed from worship services, but being sent out from worship gatherings. What would it look like if we all left all the churches in the world today and all the believers went out, and when they left, they didn't walk out saying things like, oh, was a good message today, preacher, or that preacher got a bad message today, or I'm really hungry, that went kind of long, or what's next? we got to get somewhere, or I don't know if I'm coming back, or well, check the church out again. They had a lot of things for our kids. Or, whatever. What would it look like if instead of doing all that, we all left all the churches of all the world today, we all walked out of the world being sent on the mission of the kingdom of God with a commitment to showing honor to other people, committed to outdoing one another with honor. So that every person we pass, everywhere that we go, everything that we do, every word that we say is committed to showing more honor than anybody else on the face of the planet. I kind of think the kingdom of God might flourish. I kind of think that's what a loving, forgiving people look like. Trait number two. Jesus-centered relationships honor other people. We often say around here, we want to be a culture of honor. We want to honor those who are above us, below us, beside us, ahead of us, behind us, everyone. We want to honor everybody. Bigger, smaller, richer, poorer, smarter, dumber. We want to honor everybody. Jesus-centered relationships show honor. And I get it. I understand. I know the thing. Some people are hard to show honor to. Some people just don't deserve honor. But when I read the word of God, Jesus never qualifies it. Honor the people who deserve it. He never says that. He never says it. We show honor, no matter who we're talking to. Let's look at the the third trait of a Jesus-centered relationship. The third trait right here. It's in Romans chapter 10. I'm going to go ahead and read to you. Romans 10, verse 24 and 25. The writer of Hebrews says, let us... Consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. All the more so as the day approaches, we got to encourage one another. Life is hard, messy, complicated, broken, hurtful, painful, confusing. We got to encourage one another in all the things that we do. Trait number three Jesus centered relationships. Encourage other people Jesus centered relationships encourage other people we encourage people to worship to laugh to cry to gather to work to rebuild to heal we encourage people all the way what would it look like if you committed yourself to being a person of encouragement in the book of Acts there's a man named Barnabas and Barnabas his nickname is son of encouragement what would it look like if everybody that knows you knows you are a son or a daughter of encouragement and you get that nickname because you are encouraging everybody everywhere you go. And I get it. Some people are hard to encourage. Some people are like Eeyore, just moaning all the way oh, it's going to be terrible. Oh, it's going to be horrible. Oh, it's going to fall apart. Everything's ending. It's oh, the it, it, world's over. Some people are hard to encourage. But you're creating the image of a God who encourages. He put that in you. Jesus-centered relationships encourage other people. Let's look at the fourth trait. It's way back here in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 27, verse 17, this book of wisdom. The writer is telling us how to live wisely, live rightly. And in Proverbs 27, verse 17, the writer says, The writer says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Trait number four, I'm just going to tell you, Jesus-centered relationships improve other people. You enhance, you improve, you add value to other people. Always. What would it look like? If you were committed to improving and being improved by every other person in your life because you were made for relationships, but Satan has stolen those. What if we gain them back? What if we take them back and we commit to improving and being improved by other people? What's it look like? Well, it means we have to show up. you got to show up every time, all the time. It's time to worship. We got to show up. It's time to worship. We got to log on. We got to show up with our groups, our people, our neighbors, our family. We got to show up. We got to listen up. We got to hear things that, that hurt and things that are, are hard. We got to listen up. We got we to speak up and add value and, and give honor and show love. We got to speak up. And sometimes, church, we got to shut up and just be there. Sometimes I can talk too much. You can talk too much. Jesus-centered relationships improve other people. It's what they do. Why does this matter? Why does it matter? See, every relationship that we have, it doesn't matter what type, if it's your marriage, if it's your kids, your parents, your coworkers, your employees, your your, your boss, your teacher, your students, your neighbor. It doesn't matter what it is. All relationships center on something. Why does it matter that we have Jesus-centered relationships? Why does it matter? Let me, let me tell you a little story. Back in the year, A.D. 5, that's not A.D. 5, that's A.D., 5 long time ago in the year AD 5 there was a baby born it's not Jesus just so you know there's a baby born this baby was named Saul he was born to a great family that had the greatest intentions for him, the greatest hopes for him, that he was born to a family that had some means and some opportunities, and so they put him in the best schools with the best opportunities, surrounded by the best crowds. They put him in the best clothes, and they had all the best things for their son, Saul, whom they loved very much, and they put him on the right track, and Saul went to school, and Saul, he was a quick learner, and he quickly progressed through school, and you know how it is. If you've had kids in school recently even, you know how it is in school. I have a son in high school, and right now, I know, everything, everything is, compa- it's like a race to the finish. you got to get the best grades, the best things, the best setup for college. you got to be in the A-plus program, the DC program, this program, that thing, all the acronyms. you got to be part of all this stuff. I get it. Saul was a part of all those things. He was the best of the best. And Saul graduated. And Saul went to the next step of his life. And when Saul was 27 years old, or thereabouts, Saul found himself with a group of people that he was kind of leading, kind of learning from, he was kind of apprenticing with. He found himself with a group of people. And one day, this group of people and Saul, they found themselves outside the walls of a city. And Saul found himself standing here With every opportunity in life and every chance and everything given, he found himself in this moment at 27 years old, standing there with his arms out just like this, holding a bunch of jackets in his hands. Holding a bunch of jackets in his hands while all the people he was with, this big crowd, this crowd of people, they called themselves religious leaders, they were kind of like a bunch of thugs. He stood there holding all these jackets while all these other people were with, they all bent down and they all picked up rocks about this size and they all threw them at a man named Stephen until Stephen was dead. And Saul, Saul, who was born to a great family, given a great opportunity, stood here, holding his jackets, approving of everything they did. He'd waited for this moment. He'd trained for this moment, because you see, Stephen, Stephen was preaching the good news about Jesus, and Saul, he he had joined, he had joined in with a group of people that were all against that, so he stood there approving of the death of Stephen. Stephen was viciously murdered by this band of religious thugs. Not long after that, Saul took the next step and Saul became a leader, and he begins to actively persecute and attack the church and Christians, believers himself. And he would go with his band of merry thugs that he would lead around here, and they would drag people out of their homes, they would imprison them, they would kill them, and worse. All these things, and a great persecution broke back against the church, and the church scattered everywhere. And but Saul wasn't done. He wasn't a quitter. This is Saul, he was he was a go-getter. And Saul, one day when he was about 29 years old or so, Saul was leading his merry band of religious thugs down a road to a city called Damascus, and as he closer to the city called Damascus. They're walking along and I imagine in my head that they were talking about their plans. Maybe they had a list of addresses. We're going to these houses. We're going to get these people right here. You see them? These people. And we're going to drag them out of their houses. This one's going to prison. This one's going to that prison. This one, we're going to, we're going to really humiliate that one. This, he's talking about their plans. And they're going closer to Damascus as they get closer and closer. And they're looking at their plans. They're talking through all these things. And Saul's giving all the orders to his little merry band of religious thugs. And they're getting closer and closer and closer. And all of a sudden, this blinding light pops up in the sky. Saul didn't see it coming, and he falls to his knees, as does everybody else. And Saul is blinded. It's like staring directly into the sun. He loses his eyesight. and out of this bright light in the sky, all of a sudden there's a voice that comes out of it, blew all their minds. This voice comes out, "Saul, why do you persecute me?" And all of a sudden, Saul finds himself face to face with the God. That he's waging war against. That was a pivotal day. See, up to this point, Saul had a bunch of Saul-centered, anger-centered, religious-centered, revenge-centered, cultural-centered relationships. And they had served Saul well. He got a leg up. He was doing great. But in that moment that he came face to face with the living God, Saul had to make some choices real quick. Somebody helped Saul to his feet, blind. He was led into the city of Damascus. He met a man named Ananias there. He learned about this Jesus. Saul was baptized into water. He was lowered into water, symbolically dying to all of his past, all of his past falsely centered relationships all of his past sins and pain and there were a lot of them and he was baptized and all that was forgiven through the blood of Jesus that flowed on the cross and Saul came out of the water filled with the Holy Spirit and he would never be the same again in fact he became known as Paul and he began to write all kinds of letters he began to travel on these missionary journeys preaching and starting churches after churches after churches and leading all these things and the world began to know Jesus because Saul met God Well, if you fast forward quite a bit, Saul now is an older man, about 51 years old or so, 52, somewhere in there. And Saul found himself in the city of Corinth. He'd been going on a journey. He's sitting in the city of Corinth. One night, he's been preaching the gospel all day to people. He's had a hard life. His eyes have started to fail. He can't see very good. His strength is going. He's been beaten a lot of times. And one night he's sitting there with his friend Tertius and he starts to talk. And Tertius starts to write. And Paul starts to write or to dictate a letter to a church in a city called Rome. The capital of the empire that ruled the known world. And he starts to write a letter to the churches in the city of Rome. He calls it Romans. It's in your Bible. He starts to write this out. And then they get to the end of it. And they fold it up and they seal it. And they hand it to a lady named Phoebe. And Phoebe takes this letter and she heads off to Rome. Paul's never been there yet. Paul doesn't know anybody there yet. But she takes it and she gives it to the churches and they unfold it. And they start to read this letter that Paul had sent to encourage them, to honor them, to improve them, to love them. They start to read this letter of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Came from heaven, died on a cross, resurrected out of a tomb. And then in Romans chapter 16, the very last page of the letter, Paul gives us a picture. He gives us a picture. I want to I read it. I'm not going to read it everywhere, but I want to read it to you. Romans chapter 16. Here's the picture that Paul gives. This is the result of a life lived with Jesus-centered relationships. I commend to you. Our sister Phoebe, the one that took the letter, a deacon of the church in Centria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the people and to give her any help she might need from you. She's been a benefactor of many people, including me. He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. All the churches. He says, greet the, all, oh, greet the church that meets in Priscilla and Aquila's house. That's not a name. That's a group. Greet them. He says, greet my friend Epinetus, the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. He says, greet Mary, who worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews. They are outstanding among the apostles. They were in Christ before I was. Greet these people. He says, greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker, and my dear friend Statius. Greet Apollos, whose fidelity to Christ is to the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus, his whole household, or the church in his house. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus. They're in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman. She worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mom. She's... Been a mother to me too. Greet Hasyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the other brothers, and the other sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, his sister, Olympus, all the Lord's people. Greet them all with a holy kiss. They're on the screen behind me, all those names. That might be small, you might not be able to read the words, but you can see the quantity. Saul is listing out all of these people that he's not met. At least not in Rome. They might have met him and then gone to Rome ahead of him. He's listing out all these people that he has Jesus-centered relationships with, showing love and honor and encouragement and improvement. He goes on, he says down in about verse 18 or so, He says, such people, that's the people that that live contrary to the teaching of the gospel. Such people are not serving our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. See, we get a choice. We can choose to serve ourselves with our relationships, or we can have Jesus-centered ones. We get to choose that, just like Paul did. Just like all those names. And Paul's not done. Those are all people that he wants to greet that are in Rome. Now he's going to list some names that are with him over here as he writes this letter. He says, Timothy, our co-worker sends some greetings. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater. I, Tertius, write down the letter. I greet you. Gaius, whose hospitality I enjoy and the church here enjoys. We all want to greet you. Erastus, who's the city's director of public works. Our brother Cordus, they all want to send greetings too. You see all these names, all these people, all these things? Thirty-seven names. Thirty-seven. Plus at least three, four, five mentions of a church here, a church there, brothers and sisters there, all the Lord's people over there, all these things. This is the result of Jesus-centered relationships. Why does it matter? It matters because it determines what you're building. If you have self-centered relationships, you're building your own little empire. Work-centered relationships, you're building the, the empire of, of, of Walmart or the factory, wherever you work. If you have neighborhood-centered relationships, you might have a great neighborhood, but what to, to, what, to what end? It matters because it determines what you're building. And Paul gives us a beautiful picture of a network of 37 individuals and four or five groups, multiple churches that are all in Jesus-centered relationships, and he lets us know unequivocally here that Jesus-centered relationships connect to other people and they change the world. This is why it matters. Every relationship you have is complicated. Every one of them. And the only way you will ever possibly uncomplicate your relationships is if you live at the pace of purity, if you live as a trustworthy person, and if you find a common goal and you move toward it. Every church I've been a part of, every church I've been a part of fights. Every church. Every church I've ever heard of, every church I've ever known fights. If you and I decide that our relationships are centered on ourselves, our things, our hobbies, our money, our place, our work, whatever it is, then we're going to fight with each other. But if we decide that we are going to have Jesus-centered relationships... Then our fight is not against flesh and blood. Our fight is against the enemy, the prince of this world, Satan, and the forces of hell. And we, like Jesus said, we will be a church that is marching against the very gates of hell. And the gates will not prevail against us. Every church everywhere fights. What are we choosing to fight against? And it's all determined on what your relationships are centered around. Church, I, I want to invite you. I want to invite you, like Saul at the age of 29 on the road to Damascus to meet Jesus today and choose to have Jesus-centered relationships the rest of your life. Every person, every marriage, every kid, every job, every neighborhood, every home, every school now becomes a place that you get to have Jesus-centered relationships so you can love and honor and encourage and improve and you can let the kingdom of God flow through that place right there. There is a reason the church enveloped the whole globe. It's because Jesus taught 12 men who taught 12 more each, who taught a bunch more each. And we chose Jesus-centered relationships. They changed the world, church. I invite you today, if you have not follow Jesus, I want to invite you today to follow Jesus. It's very simple. Here in a minute we're going to sing a song, and when we do, you can stand to sing. And, and you can just go out the back door, the side door. You walk out there, you go to the next steps table if you're in person today, and someone will meet you to talk about your next step in faith. They'll pray with you. If you're online, you send a message right now. And somebody right now is commenting, they're moderating. They will help you take that next step in faith so you can choose to serve and to live following Jesus with Jesus-centered relationships. That's my invitation to you today. If you've been following Jesus already, then I want to challenge you very bluntly, and very clearly, and very openly today. I want to challenge you to reject every notion of a relationship that only serves yourself. And you choose to stop wasting the time God gave you. By having Jesus-centered relationships that connect to other people and change the world. Let me pray for you. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this gathering here. I thank you. You've brought us together today. You've brought us together from all kinds of different places, different backgrounds, different families, different problems. You've brought us together today for one common reason, and that is to hear your word. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit has convicted us of your word and that you have encouraged us through your word. And I pray, Father, that when we are sent out of this place today, we will be sent out ready to show honor, to outdo one another, to show love, encouragement, to improve others, that we will be committed to Jesus-centered relationships, changing the world, building a network of people that all look to you. I pray, Father, that you would transform this city this state, this nation, this globe. And I pray that we could be intricate in that process. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Christian Church of Carl Junction podcast. If you're looking to take next steps of following Jesus, please email me at kenan at cccj.church. And I would love to connect with you in taking your next step in following Jesus.